This is the final session in our three-part series on the book of Habakkuk. In our first session, we were introduced to the minor prophet whose book was located in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Now, God would speak through his prophets to his people, usually because they had fallen away from God's commandments. His prophets would remind God's remnant, his people, his covenant people, of the ways that they are disobeying God and instruct them how to be obedient, just like a mother and father would correct their disobedient child. But this instance is different. Instead, we learn that Habakkuk boldly approaches God about the wickedness of Judah. Can you think of a time when you cried your heart out to God, asking why, because you didn't understand the pain of the situation? Maybe someone close to you has a terminal condition. Or maybe you lost your parent or child or suffered a miscarriage. Maybe your husband isn't following the Lord, even though he's a Christian. Or maybe your child's behavior has you called to the school office more times than you care to count. But it doesn't make sense to us. And so we cry out, God, why, God, why? And just as we cry out about God's, cry to God about wickedness, so does Habakkuk. And remember, the kingdom of Judah is God's remnant, his people. It pains Habakkuk to see Judah disobey God and his commandments. Habakkuk is living during the reign of the kings of Judah, sometime between, between King Josiah and King Jehoiakim. Josiah was a king who cleaned up the temple and destroyed the idols, stopped prostitution, and demolished the altars to the false gods that the previous kings had built and made God's temple holy again. While Jehoiakim, he reigned after Josiah and did evil in the sight of the Lord. He disrespected God's holy place, the temple, and he rebuilt the altars to worship false gods. So Habakkuk approaches God and questions God. If he's a just God, how could he stand idle and allow his people to act so wickedly and not punish them? He learns that though God has, has, does have a plan to bring judgment for Judah, but it's through the Chaldeans, who are a pagan, godless nation, who will ruin Judah as punishment for their wickedness. After hearing this news, Habakkuk is angry and confused at God's response. You see, the Chaldeans are known for taking what will serve their purposes and destroying everything else. So he approaches God again, asking why Judah gets judged by a more offensive nation. God responds to his complaint by reassuring Habakkuk that even though wrath will come for Judah, those who are good, who are law-abiding, who trust in God, they will live by their faith. This is the crux of the book, ladies, and the turning point for Habakkuk. Essentially, God is telling Habakkuk, don't worry about the Chaldeans. They'll get their punishment, but those who obey me, their God, they will have faith in my plan. It's only then that Habakkuk realizes that he's supposed to remind Judah what it means to have faith in God. Next, God reminds Habakkuk, of the future that comes for those who are wicked in the form of woes. God truly believes in justice, and he won't let the wicked Chaldeans go unpunished. As we enter chapter 3, Habakkuk shares with Judah what we call a psalm. It's a sacred hymn, or a sacred song or hymn we use for worship. We know we're reading a psalm by the key terms used throughout the writing. One key term we see is Selah, which is thought to reference a musical direction. 
Other phrases we see are to the choir master and with stringed instruments. One other particular word that we see is shiginoff. The true meaning isn't known, but it's thought to give direction to the passionate, rhythmic tone of Habakkuk's prayer. As we continue our study today, we'll see the dramatic shift in how Habakkuk approaches God. What was once frustration and anger will be transformed into awe, remembrance, and even joy. Let us bow our heads, and I'll pray before we begin chapter 3. Heavenly Father, be with me as I preach your word, that I would be a vessel that speaks the truth you are helping us to uncover today. And Lord, I pray that for each of us here, that the Holy Spirit would reveal what you want each of us to learn. I pray that you'll bless our time together this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Habakkuk realizes he's supposed to remind Judah what it means to have faith in God. How does he do that? He reminds Judah that God is sovereign and merciful in wrath. That God is sovereign and merciful even in wrath. Now the scenes depicted in the message of the text are vivid and powerful reminders if you know the stories they reference. And that's what Habakkuk's banking on that Judah will remember these stories about their forefathers and reignite their faith in God. But don't worry, I'll give examples to help us follow along. Habakkuk starts the psalm with a summary. He covers three points what the whole psalm is about. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember he is merciful in wrath. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember, he is merciful in wrath. Now let's hear it from Habakkuk in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiginoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, Habakkuk realizes that amid false god and idol worship, Judah's forgotten who God is. So before he can talk to God about what God's, before he can talk about what God's done, he'll have to remind them who he is. And so Habakkuk's clever. He realizes that the best way to know who God is is to introduce him to Judah. So what kind of an introduction does God get? If God is creator of all things, the earth, the heavens, the deep, mankind, animals, and all things, how do you introduce that? Let's think about some of the introductions we might use for royalty. There's Queen Elizabeth, but that's not her title, really. It's actually Her Majesty Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith. That's a long introduction. And by the way, that's just her title in the United Kingdom. She carries a slightly different title in each of the countries she oversees. Nevertheless, I'm sure you realize that this type of introduction just doesn't seem to compare to God. I mean, God has domain over everything, the whole heaven, earth, deep, all things beyond our knowing. All the realms are his. So what kind of introduction is fitting to the God of everything? I know I wouldn't do justice in trying to list God's boundless qualities and domain, but before I read how Habakkuk introduces God, I want you to hear how the verses would sound 
if Habakkuk were speaking to us. I want you to imagine God in the distant horizon of Delaware, then flying majestically over South Philadelphia in all his glory and power, coming directly toward us here at Seven Mile Road Church. And as he flies over our neighborhood, people are running inside and closing their doors. The cars stop dead in the road as they are blinded by the glory of the Lord. He's becoming larger and more visible and crystal clear with every word I speak. Now imagine he's arrived, hovering over us, the great I am. Did that make you a little tense? <laughs> I was. So let's hear Habakkuk's version and imagine what that would have been like for Judah in verses 3 through 7. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. I read this passage a lot of times over the last six months, and I still tense up every time I read it. There's so much vibrant imagery reminding us who God is. Let's examine it, starting in verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. In this verse, we see Habakkuk use common Old Testament reference to God. God is known throughout history as coming from the south. And by Habakkuk listing Taman and Mount Paran, which are cities in the south of Judah, they would know which God he's talking about. As we continue on, the second half of verse 3 and 4, his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Continuing on as we remember who God is, these next two sentences give us a visualization of who God is. Splendor is so grand, so magnificent, that it covers the heavens and the earth. His creation is brimming with praise. And he goes on to describe how God in all his glory and majesty is glowing as we can only describe as light. And even still, God veils, he conceals the greatness of his power. In our next remembrance of who God is, we hear how vast God's power is through the instruments or servants at his disposal. As Habakkuk sings verse by verse, God enters the visual that each person in Judah is drawing in their minds. Two of God's servants follow in the procession of God's entrance. One leading like a herald or proclaimer, and one following like a butler, both at his disposal. Hear it in verse 5. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. 
Some of you might be scratching your heads reading this verse again saying, servants, what on earth are you talking about? And you're right. It sounds a lot like disease, hardship, and death. And how could those represent servants of God? But if you repeat those verses to Judah, they would think back to their forefathers, to the stories that had been passed down over generations. Let me remind you of one such story. The Exodus. This story might be familiar to many of you. Israel was being held captive as slaves by Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh refused to let God's people go and worship their God. So God sent upon them 10 plagues, one at a time. Each time, Moses would encourage Pharaoh to reconsider before sending the plague. And each time, he refused to let God's people go. First, all the water turned to blood. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they were infested with frogs, gnats, and then flies. Then all their livestock died. They endured boils, hail, locusts, then constant darkness for three days. And finally, all the death of all the firstborn of man and animal in Egypt. Not only does God show us his supremacy in sending plagues on wrath, as wrath on Egypt and Pharaoh, but we see his mercy. Israel, living in the midst of Egypt, was spared from every plague. They watched the Egyptians suffer around them while they were protected by their God. Disobedience to God yielded wrath on Egypt, but in God's wrath, he had mercy on Israel. I hope that even though I only briefly reviewed this text, that you can see that God is sovereign, unlimited and boundless in his power, who reigns with both justice and mercy. He provides judgment through wrath, which comes in many forms, and pestilence and plague are just two of the examples of the power he has over the entire realm. Now that we've talked about God's glory and his power, let's move on to our, section, our next section of remembering who God is. What we hear next talks about the effect that God's presence has on the earth as he enters from the south. God's entrance is so commanding, so awesome, that the physical earth and the nomadic tribes in the countryside tremble in the presence of God's approach in verses 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His are the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan and affliction, and the curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. Wow. These mountains are the ones that God knows from creation. And either they're scared into submission, or they are so humbled by his supremacy that they bow at his feet. God is so magnificent and yet so fearsome. And Habakkuk wants, to remember Jude, wants Judah to remember how they too should react. So he tells them in verse 7 that even the nomads who are pagan and don't believe in God are frightened, hiding, and whimpering in their tents. So who is God? From the text, we read that he's magnificent, full of glory, 
worthy of praise. He's powerful and he's fearsome. Hear it again. He's magnificent, full of glory, worthy of praise. He's powerful and he's fearsome. As I read those qualities aloud, another image comes to mind, a warrior king. Habakkuk was preparing Judah's heart to see that even the times that are now and those coming that are dangerous and uncertain, that they have the best ally that any distraught, weak nation needs, someone to represent them and fight for them. As we dive into the next section of text, remembering what God has done, you'll see the text portray God as a warrior, defending his people and delivering them from the wicked. You'll see that Habakkuk uses water imagery and wrath and repeated lines of text. It's unclear why Habakkuk chooses this presentation of text. However, one thing is clear. Judah would again remember the story of the Exodus and what God and that God has used water in his wrath. After Moses and Israel were released from Egypt, God led them to the wilderness along the banks of the Red Sea. Now, I know many of you already know this story, just like Judah would, how God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order that Egypt would know that God is Lord when he defeats Pharaoh, which is exactly what he did. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh once again decided that he wanted the people back. God protected his people from Egypt until they were ready to cross the Red Sea. Moses raised his hands and his staff, and God parted the Red Sea to each side so that the water stood like walls with dry ground between them. And he and the people of Israel would walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as soon as they crossed safely, and Egypt began to follow them through the parted waters, Moses closed the waters on the Egyptians, and they were swallowed up in the sea. Hear the water imagery in verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your, on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? In the end, God rides on his chariot of victory. Do you see how deeply this imagery is affecting Judah? How God, their victor, has come again to fight on their behalf? God had mercy on Israel, even when he had wrath on Egypt. In our next example of God as a warrior, we hear God described as a bowman or an archer. One tidbit that really struck me when I was researching the text was the word arrow. When I went back and read the verse in Hebrew for comparison, the translation doesn't use the word arrow. It uses the word oath. That struck me that God's word, his oath, is as powerful as a weapon. The next two verses show us that God's word is sufficient to bring judgment or blessing. At his word, he split the earth with rivers. You might be asking why that's important. Imagine if our only sources of water came from the sky and the ocean shoreline. No rivers, streams, or lakes. God at a word brought life and vitality to the lands that we live in in order that we would be sustained through life-giving water. 
But just as God commanded, used the command for life, he also used the command for death in the story of Noah and the flood. By bringing rains and opening the fountains of the deep, which God used to bring water on our planet for creation. But he brought so much water that it covered the tallest mountains and the wickedness that once prevailed would be drowned and only Noah and his family would be saved. God's servant, water, has been used in both bringing life and taking life. And yet again, God has mercy on his people during the wrath against the world. Here, verses 9 and 10. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. I don't know about you, but the imagery and stories they uncover in our passage are just mind-blowing to me. Habakkuk reminds Judah that God uses a word to command blessing and curse. And next we'll hear him remind Judah how God's word is faithful in keeping the covenant he made with our forefathers. Now, in our next story depicting what God has done, it's probably the only section of this passage that gives a clear indication of the exact story Habakkuk wants Judah to remember. This story is the story of Israel against the Amorites, located in the book of Joshua. God had promised Israel's forefathers that he would give them a promised land and that he would help them take the land from the ruthless tribes that lived there. First, I want to fill you in on a little bit of backstory. Joshua is now leading Israel, and he is faithful and obeyed all of God's commandments. God had given them safe passage across the Jordan River once again by parting the waters for his people. Joshua then circumcised all the males, and they kept the, the Passover, renewing their forefathers' covenant with God. With God, They went on to defeat the cities of Ai and Jericho. And then they befriended a local tribe, the Gibeonites, and made a covenant of peace. Now five of the Amorite kings heard of this covenant between Israel and Gibeon, and they feared Gibeon, for it was a great city. So they planned to strike it and make war against it. Gibeon, under attack, sent men to Joshua to ask for help. And God promised that he would protect them and give the Amorite kings into Israel's hand. So Joshua and the men of Israel led a surprise attack against the Amorite kings, and the Amorites panicked. They fled from Israel. As Israel chased them, God hailed on the Amorites, killing more by hail than by sword. And then, in chapter 10, verse 12, Joshua speaks to the Lord. Son, Stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And indeed, the Lord heard Joshua and stopped the sun and moon for a full day so Joshua and Israel could finish the fight with the Amorites. And their victories continued, allowing Joshua and Israel to take possession of the Promised Land. In all, Joshua and Israel defeated 31 kings after crossing the Jordan and God gave them all the land of these nations. God pours out his wrath against the wicked nations inhabiting the promised land. 
while being merciful to Israel, fighting with them and for them. Now let's hear the images of Joshua's story as Habakkuk reminds Judah of God's faithfulness. In verse 11, he directly refers to the sun and moon standing still and then describes the hail that got sent on the Amorites as glittering spears. In verse 12, Habakkuk refers to God working through Israel to thresh the wickedness that filled what would become the promised land. Hear these verses. The sun and mood stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. God has stood with Israel time and time again, defending them when they are weak against, such as in Exodus, equipping them when they are strong, as such as the times of Joshua. But it is only when they keep the covenant with God, when they remember who he is and what he's done, that God will be merciful on Israel. So Habakkuk continues to remind them what God has done and how God has defended them in verse 13 and 14. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who, became, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. And lastly, to close this section of the passage, Habakkuk reminds Judah one last time that God is victorious in verse 15. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Looking back at Habakkuk's outline in verse 2, we've heard Habakkuk help Judah remember who God is and what he's done. In the next portion of text included in Sarah's talk, he'll ask God to repeat those stories, those times of God being merciful on Israel, this time being merciful on Judah. Because no matter what path God leads Judah on, even if it is into the hands of the Chaldeans, God is merciful and he will remember his people. Here are the final lines of Habakkuk's summary in verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This text has truly been a labor of love for me. Diving in and finding these nuggets of truth about our living God hidden in the images of their history, of my history, of our history. Can you see Habakkuk's labor of love as well to renew Judah's faith? He's an example of how we should approach God, how we are called to respond, to remember who God is, Remember what God has done, and remember that he is merciful in wrath. God doesn't always give us what we want or what we think we need, but his will is sufficient. Just as Habakkuk reminded Judah to remember who God is and what he's done, are we any different than the people of Judah, or the Chaldeans for that matter? Have we not sinned over and over, questioning the validity of God's plan, and instead we make our own? 
How many of us like taking selfies, thinking they're harmless? Yet we become obsessed with getting the perfect picture, with the perfect face, with the coolest background. This becomes a false god for us. Is our society too paralyzed to see that black lives matter just as much as any other color? We deserve God's wrath just as much as Judah and the Chaldeans. Judah's hope, only hope was for God in wrath to remember mercy. But we have a far better hope available to us, a hope that has lived the perfect, sinless life that you and I could never live, a hope that had faith in God's perfect plan every time and that healed the lame, the sick, the blind, the possessed. He befriended the corrupt tax collectors and you and me. He's the one that lived the perfect life, who bore the cross intended for our sins, died for that every sin, and rose again three days later, declaring that death and sin were defeated. This hope is in Jesus Christ. For those of us who know and trust Jesus, what idols and false gods prevail in your life? that prevent you from fully putting your trust in him? What pain and hurt have you been carrying instead of giving it to Jesus? Jesus tells us he can carry it for us. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, would you be assured that you no longer have to worry about what's going to happen next in your life like Judah? Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved, the wrath for our sins on the cross, and he's extended an invitation to an eternal life, a life in heaven, a new heaven and new earth without pain or suffering or loss. The invitation is for all who will ask forgiveness of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, your table captains would be more than happy to talk and pray with you. Let us pray. Lord, God of mercy, we thank you that you have given us prophets like Habakkuk and the stories like Noah, the Exodus, and Joshua. Joshua. 